back, he came no better than when he started. But uh, here he is, I expect. He went over to the door and admitted a tall, frail young man whom Thorndyke welcomed with quiet geniality and settled in a chair by the fire. I looked curiously at our visitor. He was a typical neurotic, slender, fragile, eager. Wide-open blue eyes with broad pupils, in which I could plainly see the characteristic hippos, that incessant change of size that marks the unstable nervous equilibrium, parted lips and wandering taper fingers, were as the stigmata of his disorder. He was of the stuff out of which prophets and devotees, martyrs, reformers, and third-rate poets are made. "'I've been telling Dr. Thorndyke about these nervous troubles of yours,' said Mr. Broadrib presently. "'I hope you don't mind. He is an old friend, you know, and is very much interested.' "'It's very good of him,' said Calverley. Then he flushed deeply and added, "'But they are not really nervous, you know. They can't be merely subjective.' "'You think they can't be?' said Thorndyke. "'No, I'm sure they are not.' He flushed again like a girl, and looked earnestly at Thorndyke with his big dreamy eyes. "'But you doctors,' he said, "'are so dreadfully sceptical of all spiritual phenomena. You're such materialists.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Broadrib. The doctors are not hot on the supernatural, and that's the fact. Supposing you tell us about your experiences, said Thorndyke persuasively. Give us a chance to believe, if we can't explain away. Calverley reflected for a few moments, then, looking earnestly at Thorndyke, he said, Very well, if it won't bore you, I will. It is a curious story. I've told Dr. Thorndyke about your voyage and your trip down the Mediterranean— said Mr. Broadrib. "'Then,' said Calverley, "'I will begin with the events that are actually connected with these strange visitations. The first of these occurred in Marseilles. I was in a curio shop there, looking over some Algerian and Moorish things, when my attention was attracted by a sort of charm or pendant that hung in a glass case. It was not particularly beautiful, but its appearance was quaint and curious, and took my fancy.' It consisted of an oblong block of ebony, in which was set a single pear-shaped pearl, more than three-quarters of an inch long. The sides of the ebony block were lacquered, probably to conceal a joint, and bore a number of Chinese characters, and at the top was a little gold image with a hole through it, presumably for a string to suspend it by. Excepting for the pearl, the whole thing was uncommonly like one of those ornamental tablets of Chinese ink. Now I had taken a fancy to the thing, and I can afford to indulge my fancies in moderation. The man wanted five pounds for it. He assured me that the pearl was a genuine one of fine quality, and obviously did not believe it himself. To me, however, it looked like a real pearl, and I determined to take the risk. So I paid the money, and he bowed me out with a smile, I may almost say a grin, of satisfaction. He would not have been so well pleased if he had followed me to a jeweller's to whom I took it for an expert opinion for the jeweller pronounced the pearl to be undoubtedly genuine, and worth anything up to a thousand pounds. A day or two later I happened to show my new purchase to some men whom I knew, who had dropped in at Marseilles in their yacht. They were highly amused at my having bought the thing, and when I told them what I had paid for it, they positively howled with derision. "'Why, you silly guffin!' said one of them, a man named Halliwell. "'I could have had it ten days ago for half a sovereign, or probably five shillings.' I wish now I'd bought it, then I could have sold it to you. It seemed that a sailor had been hawking the pendant round the harbour, and had been on board the yacht with it. 
Deuced anxious the beggar was to get rid of it too, said Hallowell, grinning at the recollection, swore it was a genuine pearl of priceless value, and was willing to deprive himself of it for the trifling sum of half a jimmy. But we'd heard that sort of thing before. However, the curio man seems to have speculated on the chance of meeting with a greenhorn, and he seems to have pulled it off. Lucky curio man. I listened patiently to their jibes, and when they had talked themselves out, I told them about the jeweller. They were most frightfully sick, and when we had taken the pendant to a dealer in gems who happened to be staying in the town, and he had offered me five hundred pounds for it, their language wasn't fit for a divinity student's debating club. Naturally, the story got noised abroad, and when I left it was the talk of the place. The general opinion was that the sailor, who was traced to a tea-ship that had put into the harbour, had stolen it from some Chinese passenger, and no less than seventeen different Chinamen came forward to claim it as their stolen property. Soon after this I returned to England.